Hello. Thank you for choosing to listen to this podcast today. I do want to let you know that we had some technical difficulties at the beginning of the message. The microphone was cutting in and out. That was noticed and the microphone was switched. But at the beginning of this service today, you will hear some pauses in the recording. Uh, Stick with it and that will change when the new mic is used. I apologize for this inconvenience. Hope you still enjoy the message. Welcome to the Compelling Words Podcast. The Word of God is meant to move us. It's meant to call us to action. Listen in as Kevin Purdy teaches and presents a genuine and compelling message from the Word of God. This morning I would want to take you back with me into my memories just for a moment. Um... It was right before my freshman year of high school, so it was a little while ago. Um, It was right before my freshman year, and I was holding that printed-off piece of paper that had my schedule of the classes that I was going to have to take. And one of those classes that was listed on the paper was typing. I had a class on typing. Now, in later years, they would then start calling that class keyboarding class. But back then, it wasn't a keyboard with a computer. Back then, it was an old school typewriter. And it was a required class, and I was not happy about it at all. I did not want to take that class. I thought it was ridiculous because why would I ever need to know how to type? I wasn't going to be a secretary working at a desk in an office. Well, guess what? I have an office with a desk and I type every single day. Some of you remember typing on typewriters, and you remember that if you made a mistake on one of those things, if you made a mistake on a typewriter, it was not easy to fix it. If you're typing and you hit the wrong key on a computer, you just backspace or you click undo or you highlight it and delete it. It's easy, but on a typewriter, you can't do that. And you have to manually back up the carriage and realign the type guide and either type a row of X's over the mistake or position some whiteout paper right over the mistake. So then you retype the mistake so that the type hammer covers the mistake with the whiteout. And then you once again realign the carriage and then you retype with the correction. It was a whole ordeal. It wasn't easy to do. And you could cover it up, you could correct it, but that mistake could never really go unnoticed. And I was thinking about that the other day, and I was thinking about how God has forgiven us. 
Listen to how the Bible describes it. In Psalm 103, verse 10 through 12, He does not punish us for all our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love towards those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. And then Colossians 1.22 says, He has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ and his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. When we are in Christ, our sins are forgiven. They're not just covered up. They are washed away. They are gone. There's no residue, no marks left behind. We stand before God, as it says, without a single fault, holy and blameless. And I know that that sounds absurd. That sounds so presumptuous that we stand before God without a single fault. I know how that sounds, but it's true. It's not because we did everything right. It's not because we did everything right. We didn't write a perfect paper. We haven't lived a perfect life. But Jesus did. And when he... His sin, he was dying for ours. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made... Sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. We become right with God not because we've done everything right, but because we are in Christ. The gospel is us that because of Jesus, our sins are forgiven. That future. Our sins are for future. But the last few weeks, and as we've read through the Lord's need to settle. Jesus prayed, asking for God's I'd like to read that again together this morning. I'd like to continue and read that together again today. So please stand with me and say, in Matthew chapter 6, Father in heaven, how your will be done. Just this day, as we also have temptation, but deliver and the power you may be seated mic on. something seems to be going on with my mic so this prayer first Jesus acknowledged how holy and reverent God is. With respect, he says, hallowed be your name. 
And then Jesus prayed to God, his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then he also prayed, give us today our daily bread. And that was a prayer acknowledging our total dependence upon God. Our need for him each and every day. Asking God to keep taking care of us. And then he prayed, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Remember, Jesus was using this prayer as an example teaching us how to pray. So the question is, if the gospel teaches us that in Christ we are forgiven for our sins, why did Jesus teach us to pray asking God to forgive us for our sins? Why did he teach us to pray that if we're forgiven of our sins? If we've been forgiven once and for all by what Jesus did on the cross, why do we continue to pray asking for forgiveness? Well, one thing to understand is the depth and the details of what salvation is. Salvation, according to the Christian faith, is when we're forgiven from our sins and we're made right with God. Salvation is given when we place our faith in Jesus as Lord and as Savior. In the Bible, when people turned to Jesus in faith, they were declaring that they believed in who Jesus was. They were confessing their sin. They were repenting from their sin. They were confessing Jesus as Lord and Savior, and then they were baptized. What we don't often talk about, though, is how there's actually three different components to salvation. Salvation is a position. Salvation is a process. Salvation is a fulfillment. And here's another way that I could say that. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. We have been saved in the moment that we place our faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. We were saved in that moment. We are being saved as we live our lives in faith, allowing the Holy Spirit to transform us. And we will be saved when we are glorified by God when this life is over. So it's a position, it's a process, it's a fulfillment. As Christians, we've been saved, and that means that our position has changed. We are no longer sinners outside of Christ. We are saints saved in Christ. We are positioned as righteous. But you and I know that we still every day struggle with sin. We are declared innocent because of Jesus, but we're still striving to overcome the day-to-day sins of this world. And I've talked about these two big church words before. We don't use these words in our everyday speech, but justification and sanctification. Justification is that position of salvation. Romans 5, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. We are justified through faith. Justification is that change in our position, a change in who we are in relation to God. We have been justified, so we are no longer lost. We are found. We were outside of Christ, 
And now we are in Christ. Justification happens in one moment. That moment in which we embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior. Justification happens in one moment. Sanctification does not. Sanctification takes time. Because sanctification is that process of growing stronger and becoming more mature in our faith. It's the day-to-day pursuit of becoming more and more holy. It's becoming Christ-like. Sanctification takes time. It's a process. At the end of the First Thessalonian letter, there's a prayer to the church, and it says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. We are meant to be sanctified through and through. We are meant to live holy lives. Romans 12.1 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Stop and think about it in the context of a family. In a family relationship, let's imagine it this way. There's an adopted child. An adopted child becomes a part of his or her family the moment the judge declares it. That means that his or her position in the family is given. The judge has declared it. They are now a part of that family. And we can compare that to our justification. When we are justified, we become a part of the family of God. But fitting in and adjusting to that family, that new family, that takes time. It's a learning process. It's a time of growth. It's filled with mistakes and lessons learned, corrections, assurance, warmth, comfort, security, love, and affection. And through all of those times and through all of those moments, the child is continuing to become what they've already been declared. And we can compare that to our sanctification. We've been brought into the family, and now as we live in the family, we're becoming more and more of what we've been declared, a part of the family of God. Did you notice that the Lord's Prayer doesn't start out with, O Lord our God, our judge. O Lord our God, our judge. It doesn't start that way. The Lord's Prayer starts out with, Our Father. When we are Christians praying for forgiveness, we are praying from inside the family of God. We're not praying from the outside trying to get back in. So when we pray as Christians asking God for forgiveness, it's not a prayer about justification. It's a prayer about sanctification. Once we are saved in Christ, we don't ask for forgiveness to change our position with God. We ask for forgiveness to change our hearts and become more like Christ. I don't, know if, I don't know about you, but I've placed my faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And I know that I'm saved by the grace of God. But I also know that I still wrestle with sin. And I still give in more than I should. And therefore, I know that I need to keep asking God for forgiveness. 
I pray for forgiveness, not because I've lost my salvation. I pray not because I'm worried that I'm not forgiven. I don't ask for forgiveness so that I could be saved again. I'm already saved. I ask for forgiveness because it reminds me that being a Christian isn't just about being saved. I pray for forgiveness because I want to be closer to God and more in line with who he is. I, I want to be the person that he has called me to be. In the Lord's Prayer, in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus gave this prayer, he said, forgive us our sins. Luke used the word most common for sin, the Greek word hamartia, which means to miss the mark. Sin, by definition, is a failure to achieve something. It's like taking aim at a target and then missing. In the Lord's Prayer, in the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus gave this prayer, he said, forgive us our debts. Matthew used the Greek word ophalema, which is the word for debt. Sin isn't just a failure, it's also breaking the law of God. And that puts us in a legal debt to God. We owe a penalty for our sins. And I know that there's a lot of talk today about debt being forgiven. But you and I know we're smart enough to recognize and know that debt doesn't just go away. It doesn't just disappear. It has to be paid for. It has to be paid for. Debt must be paid, and that's the good news of the gospel. Colossians 2, verse 13 and 14 says, When you were spiritually dead because of your sins and because you were not free from the power of your sinful self, God made you alive with Christ, and he forgave all our sins. He canceled the debt, which listed all the rules we failed to follow. He took away that record with its rules, and he nailed it to the cross. Because of Jesus, we are no longer in debt with God. He paid our debt. We have been forgiven. And because we are forgiven, we should be forgiving people. Remember how Jesus taught us to pray. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. I think one of the most shocking parables that Jesus ever taught is the parable of the unforgiving servant. Do you remember that parable? In that story that Jesus told, there's a servant who owed his master this great amount of debt. And the master has mercy on him, cancels the debt, and lets him go. But then this same servant goes out, and he finds a servant that owes him just a little bit. But he doesn't offer him mercy. No, he chokes the man, demands his money, and then has him arrested and thrown into prison. And here's how the parable ended. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged, and they went and they told their master everything that had happened. And then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back what he owed. And then in the next verse, here's what Jesus says, applying this to us in Matthew 18, 35. This then is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. When Jesus told this story, he used hyperbole. He exaggerated it to make a very significant point. 
He exaggerated how much the debt the one man owed in comparison to the other to make a very, very clear point. The first man owed 10,000 bags of gold, which was equivalent to several million dollars. He was shown mercy and his debt was canceled. But then he went and found a man who owed him just 100 silver coins, which was equal to just a few dollars. And this man was assaulted and punished over the debt. Do you understand the significance of that? That extreme, that extreme exaggeration illustrates to us how incredibly huge God's forgiveness is. The debt that we owe God is way more than we could ever begin to try to pay back. It's also meant to motivate us to be willing to forgive. The sin against us cannot compare to the weight of our sin against God. And if we have been forgiven of so much, we should most certainly be willing to forgive. God, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. It's not just biblical to forgive. It's not just good because God commands it. It's also healthy and good for us. There are numerous studies that show that forgiveness is associated with lower levels of depression, anxiety, and hostility, reduced substance abuse, higher self-esteem, and greater life satisfaction. A psychologist named Everett Worthington, who spent his career in the field of forgiveness research, developed a five-step method for forgiveness, for practicing forgiveness. It's called REACH, R-E-A-C-H. The R stands for recall. The first step is to recall what was done. This is looking at the situation with objectivity and just recognizing what happened, recognizing how it made you feel. E is for empathize. Next, try to understand the person's point of view. Sometimes the wrongdoing was not personal, but could be attributed to something the other person is dealing with. A is altruistic gift. This step is about acknowledging your own shortcomings. Stop and consider a time in which you were wrong and someone else forgave you and how that made you feel. C is commit. This is the conscious decision to forgive. Make the commitment tangible. Write it down. Say it out loud. Tell someone. And then H is hold. Hold on to the forgiveness. Memories and bad feelings will likely come up again. Forgiveness doesn't erase that, but it changes how you react to those memories. I think there's a lot of truth and there's a lot of wisdom in this method of forgiveness. And I want to tell you just a couple things about the man who created this. First of all, he's a Christian. So he knows the Lord and he knows the forgiveness that God gives. He knows the sin in his life and the grace of God that has washed it away. He also knows how hard it can be to forgive someone else. On January 1st, 1996, his 76-year-old mother was murdered in her home. Two teenage boys had broken in looking to steal things, and they didn't think anybody was home. And when his mother confronted them, one of the boys attacked her with a crowbar. He was already very interested and very involved in researching the power of forgiveness, but that made all of his work 
become very personal. Here's what he wrote in a Christianity Today article. He said, trying to forgive my mom's killer was like standing on a storm on top of Mount LeConte. My instinct was to huddle down in pain, but the personal relationship with Jesus that had transformed me at the youth conference set me on a different path. I thought through the reach forgiveness model my colleagues and I had developed and tested over the years. The model provides five steps that act like wooden forms a builder might use when pouring concrete. God pours in the substance of change. We appropriate it by recalling Christ's death on our behalf to open up the way to the Father's forgiveness of our sins. The essence of the forgiveness model is taking the hard step of trying to see things through the offender's eyes. Through prayer, I could see the young man's fear of prison and anger at having his plans spoiled. Being able to empathize with him didn't mean I accepted what he had done, but it did help me forgive him. I can't stand up here today and say that that level of forgiveness is easy, but I can most definitely say that the heart of God is all about forgiveness. And even if we're living faithful in Christ, saved by grace, let's never forget that we need his forgiveness each and every day. And may the Holy Spirit transform us and lead us to forgive others. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Thanks for listening. Please take a moment to rate this podcast. May the word of God be living and active in your life.